I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit AbyssBattery.com. Welcome to the Bear Archery Podcast. I have a special guest coming all the way from Australia, Mr. Ben Solaris. I met Ben a few years back and uh, we just kind of hit it off. He's an awesome dude. He's a very accomplished hunter. Uh, he has punched tags in 16 different countries. He has received awards for some of the biggest sheep ever killed. He's a phenomenally nice guy. And I just love hearing about hunting in Australia. It's been a dream of mine to hunt in Australia. Although it's not top on a lot of people's bucket list destination hunts, it is for me. Uh, and part of that is probably due to the passion that you hear Ben Solaris talk about hunting in Australia with. So we talk about some of his favorite things to hunt, some of the most difficult things to hunt. We also talk about the cultural acceptance of hunting in Australia and kind of the crossover between the United States and Australia and the the struggles that that both places have when it comes to hunting. Guys, it's a really good conversation. Ben's a really awesome guy. So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. As always, this episode is brought to you by our good friends from Scentlock. Guys, wherever you're hunting or whatever you're hunting, Scentlock has you covered. So whether you're in Australia chasing down some of these incredible deer that we're going to talk about, or whether you're in the backcountry, or whether you're sitting in a tree stand in the Midwest, Scentlock has something for you. Guys, I would highly encourage you to check out the entire line of Scentlock and the BE1, the Bowhunter Elite Series, which is the most complete series you will ever find of clothing for bow hunters. So guys, go check out Scentlock and everything they offer. But let's dive in, and I hope you enjoy Mr. Ben Solaris. With over 90 years of innovation, Bear Archery continues pushing toward the goal of founder, Fred Bear, making archery accessible for all. Fred believed the history of the bow and arrow were the history of mankind, and everyone should immerse themselves in the outdoor experience. Welcome to the Bear Archery Podcast, where the mission is simple, to hunt, grow, and inspire others. Guys, I'm an arrow junkie. I love arrows. And I have found a fondness for deer crossing archery. Everybody makes a good arrow. I'm not saying that anybody out there makes a bad arrow. But what really sets deer crossing archery apart is when I call them, I'm going to get, A, the owner on the phone. I'm going to get the guy that's building my arrows on the phone. And they're going to walk me through a complete custom build. They're not shipping me a box of arrows that they ship out to everybody. I'm going to pick my knot colors, my fletching colors, my wrap colors, the fletching configuration I want on the arrows. Not only that, I'm going to walk him through my setup. I'm going to walk him through what I'm looking to get out of the setup. I'm going to tell him total arrow length I want to be hitting, total arrow weight I want to be hitting, total uh, insert, outsert weight I want to be hitting, FOC, 
and he's going to custom build a set of arrows and send them to me. My arrows aren't going to be best for you. Your arrows aren't going to be best for me. We need custom arrows. Deer Crossing Archery builds those arrows custom for you, and they always perform. Their silencer shaft is my favorite arrow on planet Earth. I've shot 40-plus animals with that arrow. It always performs. It always blows through the animal. I always get great penetration. It's a micro-diameter shaft. They do have a full line of shafts. Uh, the new Rupture Arrow is a phenomenal arrow. I shot a deer with it this year in Missouri. I love their arrows. Guys, I would highly encourage you to check out Deer Crossing Archery because you don't have to go to a box store and buy a set of arrows that are just made from the factory. You can get arrows custom made for you that are going to work best for you and your setup. Guys, use code HUNTING101 to get a discount at Deer Crossing Archery. I would highly encourage you to check them out. They are phenomenal. All right, Ben. So I am uh, I'm ab- absolutely excited to talk. I um, We did a Pope and Young podcast a few years back. And, uh, ever since then, I've kind of, I've kind of wanted to have you on the bear archery podcast and, uh, just, it always got pushed back and always slipped my mind. And then I was sitting at, uh, the wild sheep foundation show sheep week. And, uh, I was at the awards banquet and little, little, I mean, here comes Ben Solaris receiving awards. And I'm like, dang, that's my guy right there. He's, he's, uh, (laughs) making waves. So before we jump in, man, uh, give us an introduction to yourself and, um, kind of what you do there in Australia. Um, and cause I know you guys kind of, you kind of work with, uh, the Australian equivalent to Pope and Young, if, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah. Um, that's, that's right. It's, 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 I guess it's well. Firstly, thanks for having me, Dylan. It's it's great to um it's great to be here with you and having a chat again. And the last couple of years has gone very quickly since our last um our last catch up. Um, we have a we have an organisation in Australia called Trophy Takers, which is um I guess it was based on Pope and Young, um, formed in the seventies, nineteen seventies. Um, I guess it's mostly based on um game measurement and recording rather than um, the active promotion and protection um, of, of bow hunting. So it's it's really more focused on the measuring of game and the recording of, of, of trophy game. Um, it's taken that element, I guess, from Pope and Young. Um, so, yeah, I'm a, one of the – been involved in trophy takers for quite a few years now and it's not a huge group. It's not a – it doesn't have a huge membership in Australia. Um, but – it's there's a lot of yeah a lot of active bow hunters um get involved in it and um yeah i think it's good to i think there's been a like i'm not sure if it's the same in in the us but i've noticed there's been a drift away um from i guess the value that bow hunters collectively put on measuring game as a as a thing that we do um i think in the in the last 10 years or probably 20 years it's become uh less of a um less of a focus for, for a lot of bow hunters. And there's a lot of bow hunters out there that um, couldn't care less about um, measuring their trophies. Um, and that's just an observation of mine. But, yeah, I think it's I think it's think it still has its place. Um, and I think it's I think it's a great way of really celebrating the animals, you know. It's not about it's not about celebrating us. It's it's really about celebrating the animals that we've um, that we've managed to um, take um, out in the bush. So, um, yeah, that's the way I see it. So we, yeah, the, the trophy takers is still ticking along and it's still, um, 
yeah, we still meet. We have a we have an annual event where we meet each year. Um, yeah, and there's, there's there's it's 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 still fairly active, but it's not it's not it wouldn't be anywhere near the membership that um, Hope and Young would have in the states, for example. It's just such a it's such a giant misconception that you measure your animals for yourself. Like so many people, when you talk to them about scoring an animal, they say, yeah, but I, I mean, I don't need any recognition or, oh, it's not about score. Or, oh, it's not about that. Well, I beg to differ, man, because the animal, like you owe it to that animal. The animal deserves the right to be in a books amongst its peers. And, you know, this is Pope and Young and Bear. We work really closely together and, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of synergy between the two, and Fred Bear was one of the 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 largest donors to to Pope and Young in its in its infancy, and so there's a lot of history there. Um, but I just think so many people have the 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 misconception that we we enter our trophies for the sake of ourselves, like for you know some yeah. boasting or, or whatever. Um, it's not about you; it's about the animal. Yeah, and, and I think I think most of us will agree on that. Um, but I, but there's probably going to be variance between all of us as as a population of worldwide bow hunters. There's going to be a, a variance um, in terms of how much um, how much we I guess celebrate the animal and how much we celebrate ourselves. Um, I think um, myself personally, um, I. And I, I explain this to people quite regularly. Like I, I, I really struggle with calling bow hunting a sport. I, I, I don't, I, I don't use that word, and I, I haven't really found the perfect word to describe bow hunting as a, as an activity and as a, as a pastime and as a lifestyle or all, all these other words that we may call it. Um, but at the end of the day, there is no, um, in, in, in something like bow hunting, there is no, in my view, there is no. Um, capacity for any competition between individuals but i think we're so as as modern humans we're so driven by competition in all the other sports and all the other things that we do where we're, we're we're one in seven billion and and um there is such a there's so many drivers for us to be competitive and to compete um over our lives i think we can't help but for some, for some of that to come into our actual into the hunting scene, and, and yeah. we do see that, like I'm, I'm sure you see that. But I, I like to remind people that, yeah, technically there is no capacity for there to be any competition between two individuals. We can compare animals. You can you can go and shoot a white tail, and and I can I can shoot one the next week that's a bit bigger, and I can or vice versa, and we can compare those animals, and we can. But really, it's those animals are. Um, there's no measurable way to compare a hunter to another, in my opinion. Um, there are so many variables when we're hunting. There are so many different factors. And as you know, there's just an endless list of things that come into every hunt, not just like every single hunt. So, yeah, I, I like to remind people that, that, yeah, the competition in hunting is – there's just technically not a place for it, in my opinion. I, I just – I just, I, I just I, it, it – by definition, it just can't even be a thing. So at the end of the day, it is about the animals. It is about celebrating the animals and um, respecting them. And that must come from somewhere. And I think about this a lot. Like it must, there must have been a point somewhere in the past, um, thousands of years ago, where 
someone, someone somewhere decided, right, I'm going to carry this head home. I'm going to carry this back to the cave or back to the, back to the um, grass hut rather than just carrying the meat. Someone somewhere said, right, I, that head looks really cool or that set of antlers or whatever it was. I'm going to take it back and I'm going to display it at my cave. So that must have happened at some point in history and, and since then it's just developed um, in, 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 if not like most cultures, if not all cultures, it's just become a thing over time to the point where now we still, we still admire and celebrate trophies. And, and I'll, I'll put that in inverted commas, but when I say trophy, I mean a set of antlers, a set of tusks, a, a skull, something from the animal to demonstrate its age or, or its, its size or its, um, yeah, what it, any of those, any of those things. So it's a really interesting thing and, um, there must be a lot of history behind it. And I don't think we fully understand that, but we, we understand it enough to know that it's important to us and, and, um, I think measuring game and, and recording game is, is part of that progression um, into this modern era. Well, I think that it's, you know, and the, and the, the terminology of trophy hunters gets a, a bad rap a, and for good reason. You know, we shouldn't call ourselves quote unquote trophy hunters. Um, but for the, for the people who put down trophy hunters, just to say I'm a trophy hunter does not mean I don't enjoy the meat as well. Uh, just to say that I I am more selective on the the quality of animal that I kill does not mean that I don't value that meat. Doesn't mean I don't care for that meat. Doesn't mean that I don't uh, prepare that meat, you know, in a in a purposeful way that is going to feed myself and my family. Um, because just because I enjoy big antlers does not mean that I could care less about the meat. And you know, I would dare say and and because trophy hunting uh, gets a bad rap, even amongst hunters. And so I would dare say that the guy who is more selective on the animals that he kills, no, I wouldn't dare say that. I, I, I don't say this with any kind of uh, apolo apologetics in my voice at all. Um, because the guy that is more selective about the animal that he kills does more good for the herd than the guy who goes out and shoots whatever he sees. Because what happens is when I shoot a deer that is bigger and older and more mature, it's past its breeding prime. I am taking out a deer that should be removed from the herd. Whereas if you go in and kill a two and a half year old deer, just because it's the first one you see, you're removing a deer that's in the heat of its prime of breeding and breeding does and, and furthering that herd. And so right. yeah. in the same breath that we as trophy hunters get a bad rap, we're doing more for the good of the herd than the guy who goes out and shoots the first animal he sees. Now, either is fine. Let me let me just preference it. Either is fine. It's your tag. Do with it how you choose. But you're absolutely right, dude. We have to stop putting people down because of how they hunt, because of what they choose to shoot, whether they choose to wait for a big mature animal or whether they choose to punch their tag on the first thing they see. We have to quit putting people down for what they shoot and why. And so I, I admire that about you, man. Now, is is there a lot of separation between hunters in Australia, or are they more one unified front? Um, there is a lot of separation. That's the short answer. There's a lot of separation. Um, there's, there's there's a there's a distinct lack of um, 
coordination and unity. And that's not just with that's not just between the bow hunting or within the bow hunting community. That's within the wider hunting community. So, what you see in a place like Australia, um, which will probably be of interest to your listeners, is there's there's a lot of cultural differences um, between a place like Australia and a place like the US. Over here, ninety five percent, if not more, of hunters are dedicated to one method. So they're either a bow hunter or a rifle hunter, or they hunt with hounds. Um, there's, there's very few people who will do or cross over between several methods. Whereas in the States, it's so common to see people who hunt with rifle and bow, and it's probably due to the seasons and the way the regulations work there. We don't have that. We don't have those regulations and those seasons here virtually at all. So there is no drivers for people to, um, to diversify between the different, um, styles. So. So what you've got in Australia is is a is a bow hunting community. You've got a rifle hunting community. You've got the dog hunting community. They they um, I guess in Australia there's two distinct um, styles when it comes to hunting with hounds. There's hunting wild pigs and hunting samba deer. You'd be interested to know there's a very interesting I guess. Wait, what was that second thing that you said? Samba deer. S a m b a r. So that's a that's a huge Asiatic deer that's almost the size of an elk. It's um it's bigger than a red deer. Um, they're, they're they're originally from um from Asia. They're a chocolate brown color, huge animals, and they live in generally live in very mountainous thick um terrain down in one particular state called Victoria. They virtually are restricted to one state. Um, so there is a whole culture of hunting this one species of deer with hounds in this one particular state. And it's huge. There are thousands and thousands of people who are very dedicated to that style of hunting. So I've never seen really in the modern day, I can't think of too many examples of hunting deer with hounds anywhere in the world. I, I can't think of any examples. I, I guess in Europe, they, they do driven hunts where they're flushing the deer out. Um, so there is, there is, I guess that style in, in Europe is still popular, but yeah. So we're we're dis, we're in these distinct groups, and and there's a lack of unity within these dis, within these distinct groups, and there's a lack of unity um, as a whole as well. Um, we are I, 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 like that's a whole another discussion in itself, and I, I could give you plenty of reasons why I think that is the way it is. Um, but I think just um, unfortunately we're just not particularly organized and there's a lot of um i guess there's a lot of people who um it's hard to come to it's hard to find common ground it's it's hard to find common ground there's a lot of people heading in different directions with different ideas and there's always a lot of egos i'm sure you've seen that in 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 your travels there's there's a lot of different factors that lead to this lack of unity but it is a big problem um and my fear is that we're going to lose something major um, before we um, like. We're, my feeling is that we're going to lose something, and and that's going to be the trigger for for people to actually come together and unify and, and actually work towards some solutions. I, I I fear that's probably going to happen. We've already we've already lost bow hunting in one state. You'd be interested to know that bow hunting is not legal in one of our seven states in Australia. So. We've already lost it in one state, and there's there's been a lot of um, talk in recent months about um, another state potentially banning bow hunting as well. So just think about that. Imagine a state 
completely banning um, bow hunting. Um, and that's it's 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 on the cards. It's 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 a it's it's a it's very um, it could easily happen any moment. And not and when when once when it happens in one state, it could quite easily fall into another and then another. So and that's exactly it's a why pretty serious if, situation. If you don't think that our freedoms to hunt are on the verge of being taken. Like if you don't see what is happening, because here's what's not going to happen. They're not going to come in and they're not going to say, all right, bow hunting is no longer illegal in Texas. You can no longer shoot deer in Texas. That's not what they're going to do, but they're going to come after us. Consider it like death by a thousand cuts. You know, they're not going to automatically just say, okay, no more bow hunting in the United States of America, but they're going to come after, you know, using uh, archery equipment in one single County. And then once they get that county, they'll come after the state. And then once they get that mm. state, they'll move to another state. Or or even take out deer hunting because that's, you know, a massive thing that would be taken and would all get attention. But think about taking away um, coon hunting in one single state or squirrel hunting or, um, you know, the use of, of – single pieces of equipment in states like they're going to start taking things piece by piece and then all of a sudden you're going to look around and you're going to say wait where did it go like what what yeah. happened how did it how did this happen so is hunting because you've you've been all over the world to hunt is hunting as commercialized in australia as it is in the states no way no way um yeah like it's 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 become such a um, it's become such a um, like the, there's just such a lot. I guess I guess the, the thing is it's just such a, a small population of people who actively hunt. Especially when you um, if we're talking bow hunters, that's even a smaller fraction of the of the of the overall population of hunters. There's such a small number of us out there that. A normal, the average Australian person in their lifetime probably doesn't come in contact with anyone who's actually a hunter in their life. So the average person out there right now in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane, not so much the country, but particularly in the cities where the biggest population is, they're going to go through their whole life without ever even meeting a hunter or having any idea what hunting is about. They've only, their whole perception of hunting is based on what they've seen on social media and on TV and the story they saw about Cecil the Lion and what they remember from, from the Bambi movie. Like, um, whereas in the States, I think there's such a, there's, there's a much larger percentage of people are probably hunters and have um, interface with, with hunters and therefore have an understanding or at least have had a chance to gain some understanding of who we are and what we are actually about. Um, so I think that's that's an issue at the moment. Um, and what that also means for us is I think in Australia there's probably a lot of there's a lot there's a lot of people who are pro hunting, obviously the hunters, there are a lot of antis who are the ones that are out there trying to trying to bring us down. But that other probably eighty percent of the population that is somewhere in the middle, I I think they're quite undecided and they're probably um, they can probably swing both ways. So it's a real PR, like, like at the moment, it's a real, it's a major PR issue for us. And it's really about educating um, the uneducated. And, and that's our challenge at the yeah. moment is, is really, is really, um, yeah, it's really getting across 
to those people who haven't met a hunter, they haven't had any exposure to real modern hunting and, and just don't really know what it is. And, and as we know, any, any sort of, um, any good, any sort of, uh, good kind of practical, um, yeah, like average person, if once they see what we do and what we're about and, and how we go about our activities, um, they're probably going to be supportive of what we do unless they're, unless they're very, very strongly, um, against, yeah, any kind of harm coming towards animals. So, yeah, I think there's, yeah, it's, 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 it's comp- like you would never walk into a supermarket wearing camouflage in Australia. You would, if you, if I, even in a, I live in a country town, like I live in a town of about 5,000 people. If I walked into my supermarket wearing camouflage and like branded hunting clothing, everyone would stare at me and they wouldn't have a clue. They'd probably think I was from the army or something like that. Um, it is, you will never see someone walking down the street wearing camouflage. Um, you'll like, it's, it's very underground and it's very, um, it's very hidden, I guess, from society. And, um, yeah, it's not, it's not in the faces of the general community. Um, and that goes for the cities and, and country areas as well these days. Um, it's very much behind the scenes. What 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 happens? Um, I would I would highly encourage you. I would highly encourage you to read. There's a book, and I'll send you one. Um, it's written by Peter Churchborn in the NRA, but it's called How to Talk About Hunting. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard it or or read it, but it's a phenomenal book. And and basically, they can take you worldwide and tell you what a 35 year old Asian woman who lives in New York City thinks about hunting. And, you know, how do you have those conversations to start to start showing them the truth behind hunting? Now, are we trying to create every single one of them into hunters? No, because we never will. However, we might very well need those people to vote one day Um, when when a when an issue about hunting is put in the ballot boxes. We might very well need them to understand what we do and why we do it. Um, when it comes to that ballot box biology and voting based off of pure emotion rather than science, we might very well need them to say, well, you know what? I talked to a hunter one time named Ben Solaris or named Dylan Ray. And man, the way that they articulated about hunting made me realize that, you know, they're not all bloodthirsty, nasty, you know, ravengers that are going out and just killing anything they see. And so it's a phenomenal book. Now, I would highly encourage, like, I wouldn't encourage everybody to read the book because it's very, like, scientific and analytics and a lot of numbers and, you know, a lot of science research that you're reading through. So it's not like just anybody should just pick up this book and start reading it because you'll hate it. But for anybody who is in that line, for anybody who is, for anybody who's in the industry, I'll say that, um, should definitely 100% read the book. And especially if you have a conservation mind, like if you are involved in any sort of hunting conservation, um, you 100% should read this book. So, um, mm. and I don't know if you can get one over there, but I'll certainly, I'll certainly have Peter send you one and, uh, and get that in your hands. Guys, I'm a big believer in prioritizing your feet. Your feet should always be a priority and you should always be considering what's on your feet. If you're in the mountains and you've got blisters and hot spots. You are not going to go as far. You're not going to make it to that next ridge. You're not going to stay on the mountain as long. Ultimately, you're not going to be as successful. If you're sitting in a whitetail stand and your feet are freezing, 
you're going to get more jittery. You're not going to be as still. You're not going to be as quiet. You're not going to stay as long. Ultimately, you're not going to be able to kill that big buck in the dead of winter. If you're chasing antelope, you've got to be able to be quick and quiet and fast and have comfortable feet. Guys, no matter what you're chasing, no matter the pursuit, no matter the game, your feet should be a priority. I have fallen in love with Schnee boots. I didn't even know how normal hot spots and blisters were in my life until I got a good pair of boots because I was probably a lot like you. I would run to a, a Cabela's Bass Pro and I would buy a pair of $100 boots thinking that I was saving money. But those boots break down faster and I got to keep buying boots. So guys, don't let a pair of $400 boots keep you from buying good boots because in the long run, those $100 boots, they add up. Whereas if you spend good money on a good pair of Italian-made handcrafted boot. They're going to last you for 10, 15 years. They're going to be way more comfortable. You're going to be more successful. Your feet will be more comfortable. You will thank me later. So guys, go check out schnees.com for all of your boots. That's S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com. The best boots on planet Earth, Schnee boots. Go check them out. Thank me later, but guys, start prioritizing your feet and get yourself a good pair of boots. That's a great one to, yeah, to sh- like, um, I, I haven't heard of that book, but that's a great one to just be um, sharing amongst, amongst the community too, just just telling people that that book's out there and um, just just telling people where, where to get it and stuff like that. Like that sounds like a great tool um, for us to be using at the moment. And I'd like to... I'd like to mention something like this. There's, there's so many, like, obviously this is a huge rabbit hole, um, this conversation and there are, there's so much going on at the moment. There's so many really positive things happening out there at the moment. Um, the whole, um, emergence of blood origins recently, Robbie's, Robbie's work over the last several yeah. years. Um, there's lots of, there's lots of really great progress happening and there's a lot of different arguments and a lot of different, um, I guess there's a lot of different. Um, I guess we're thinking more about why we do this and and why we why we hunt. There's been a lot more of that um, rhetoric recently. But one thing I'd like to mention, and I challenge you to, um, I challenge you to have a think about it, um, and and maybe the listeners as well. Is I, in my work, um, I'm an environmental um, engineer by trade, so I work. Um, I've, I've mostly worked in major oil and gas construction projects, mostly pipelines and stuff like that, but always on the environmental management side. But often my work crosses over with the cultural heritage um, side of things as well. So often we're very linked. And um, cultural heritage is a term that we are not using enough. Now, in, in in this modern era, like right now, the term cultural heritage seems to be reserved for um, for groups of people who have been westernised less recently, it, to put it simply. And everywhere I've worked, that's basically the case. But um, every, every single human being on this planet has the right to cultural heritage and we all have, um, we all have, whether we know it or not, this link to what you would call intangible cultural heritage, no matter where we're from, no matter what the colour of our skin, no matter where our ancestors have come from or whatever. Like my ancestors are Spanish and French and English. I've got a whole range of – you probably do too. Um, But all of our ancestors not very long ago were doing this 
as part of their um, basic survival. And it's, it's really something that it's something that went for thousands and thousands of years, a time scale we can't get our heads around. And that link to that heritage is still strong in us. That's why that's why bow hunting makes so much sense to us when we walk out in the bush. That feeling that's hard to describe. That 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 feeling we get when we're out in the when we're out hunting with a bow. Um, that that is something that's still very deep inside us. And and that, and the reason for that is because our ancestors were doing it for so long. So I think the word. Well, the term cultural heritage needs to be used more often. Um, and when you look at the, when you look at legislation and how cultural heritage is, um, I guess, protected by by international legislation, that that's when it becomes really interesting. Um, so if you if you start to really look into the definitions of cultural heritage and you look into, um, like for example, the UNESCO definition and and how that. Um, the level of protection that it has. Um, I think that's an avenue that we need to start going down a lot more because this is, bow hunting is my cultural heritage. And just because someone, just because we've got people who are so detached and lost from their heritage that, that are out there trying to stop me doing what, doing what I'm doing, just that doesn't mean we should cave in and, and lose it. You know, like it's, um, yeah, it's just a term I think we should start using a lot more. So I challenge you to think about that and um, maybe pop it into a sentence at some stage, yeah. You know, and I've said this before, um, so I don't really want to get stuck on it too deeply, but the whole idea of not hunting, when it comes to when it comes to the human race, the idea of not hunting is really a young idea. You know, if you told somebody a hundred years ago, oh, you shouldn't hunt, they'd be like, well, then how do I eat? Like, what do you mean I shouldn't be a hunter? It's and it goes back to exactly what you're saying. Like, my my life, my my world is built because people decided to go out and hunt and to, to get food. You know, if you would have told my great grandpa, hey, we don't we don't hunt, like Okay, well then, how am I supposed to get food? Like, and maybe I'm going too young. Maybe my great great grandfather, but um, you know, if you told my great great grandfather, "Hey, we're going to run to the store and buy meat," he'd have been like, "What are you, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. how? You know?" Um, because that ideology, in terms of the human race, is really young. But then they, but the yeah. non-hunters. The non-hunters make it seem like we're pulling this idea of hunting just out of nowhere, and it's just it's it's mind blowing to think you would go out and kill something. Well, yeah, that's yep. that's, I mean, that's <laughs> that it's in our DNA, literally in our DNA to go out and kill what we eat. Yeah, and it's it's going to become a thing again, Dylan. I, I'm not sure. I'm not a I'm not a pessimist. Um, and I'm not a prepper or anything like that, but uh, it's gonna just just the just, when you just look at the very most basic cycles of what's what's happened on this planet so far, there's gonna come a time again where we rely on hunting. The, let's face it, the time is gonna come again where people are going to have to know how to light a fire. They're gonna have to know how to hunt and gather and survive because our like I just think it's ludicrous to think that this society that we live in now is going to continue on this on this path 
Um, oh, you're absolutely it's right. Just not. It's and not we got a taste of it. So, and I don't, I don't, I don't know how COVID was in Australia, but we got a taste of it with COVID because the people who yeah. hated hunters and why on earth would you hunt? And I don't eat wild game. That's disgusting. Well, all of a sudden when yeah. the meat ran out at the Walmart, people were calling me saying, Hey, can I have some meat? And I'm like, wait a second. I thought you were against hunting. Right. But I can't, there's no meat at the at Walmart. We need meat. And I'm like, so all of a sudden you're okay with how I live. Like <laughs> yeah. when you can't run to the grocery store and buy it, all of a sudden you're okay with it now. And so we got a taste of it. And I think it was good for the hunting community and good for the non-hunting community to figure out, man, they, they've got something, you know, they've got something worked out to where they didn't starve throughout all that when we couldn't get meat. That's right. That's exactly right. And there was a huge boost in um, bow, bow and arrow sales and broadheads and rifles and ammunition and hunting oh, yeah. gear in general in Australia. Like during COVID, it just went absolutely crazy. Like, because it did, it, it, there was so many people who were right on the edge of hunting, I guess, who it, it was the catalyst that was needed for them to go, right, well, we need to look at another option here. And COVID was one thing, but there'll be something, something else will, something else will happen. It may not be in our lifetimes. It may be, it may not be in our kids' lifetimes either, but it's going to happen. Something something major will happen, and um, yeah, the, yeah, the reliance sure. that we have on on financial systems and food systems and the way things currently are, the whole setup is so fragile. It's just so fragile, and there will come a point where we have to go back to basics. And hunting will be hunting will be a thing that we need to go back to. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's 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 my view on reality. But uh, we've gone pretty deep there, mate. We've covered some pretty pretty yeah. deep topics and gone gone fairly um yeah gone fairly fairly deep straight into it. Um yeah, but no, it's I think it's good. I think these conversations are great, and I I love having these types of conversations with um with mates who are hunters and also mates who are not hunters. You know, like it's it's great to have these discussions and um yeah. Um, let's take a let's take a jump back. Uh, on a lighter note, dude, I gotta we gotta revisit this whole sandbar. Is that how you said it? Samba. Yeah, we we pronounce it samba. Um it's kind of spelled sandbar. Uh if you were if you're an Aussie, you'd say sambadia, um, as in the style of dance. But there's actually an R gotcha. at the end, so it's S-A-M-B-A-R. Um, yeah, so they're, I'm looking at them now. They look our, crazy, stinking cool. This is this. Well, they, and the, I remember one of my favorite things about talking with you the first time was just hearing about hunt. And I remember I, I kind of started using the phrase hunting down under, um, and just hearing just the way you talked about it and how different it was to hunt over there. Um, and mm. this is definitely back on that same track because this looks like a crazy, cool, stinking animal. I don't know if you've ever seen it, guys, but. It's literally an elk, but a deer at the same time. Like it's a really cool animal. So how do you hunt these? Are you tree stand, spot and stalk? Do they, I mean, how do they rut? Like, tell me about this animal. They're, they're probably pound for pound. Um, they probably would be, well, there's a few different arguments here, but yeah, they, they're definitely one of the most difficult deer to take in Australia. Um, really? They generally, they generally live in, um, in, in very thick forest, very kind of not the sort of forest, very noisy forest, I guess you could call it. It's it's the Victorian bush is very 
difficult to stalk through. It's not a it's not the kind of forest where you can pick your way through and there could be an opportunity around any any corner. It's it's difficult it's difficult terrain to hunt. Um, not many of these deer get shot with a blow each year. Um, there's a lot of effort goes into them with rifles and with and with hounds as well. The hound crews take thousands and thousands of deer per year. But there's a very, very small number of, of these deer that get taken with a bow each year. Um, they're really, really, really difficult to stalk. And there will have been a few that have been taken with tree stands and um, they're like the Definitely some people would use tree stands sometimes, but it's very rare in Australia for anyone to use tree stands. It's only a novelty sort of thing that, that you re- very rarely see. Um, now, how big, are, how big in, are these? How much do they weigh? Well, a big stag is not much different to a – not that much – well, a little bit smaller than a um, – a little bit smaller than an elk, um, but bigger than a red stag. So there's not a – there's not a – like – if you if you know roughly how big a red stag is, and obviously you know how big an elk is, it's probably about halfway in between. So they're bigger and heavier than a red deer. Um, they are big, but they're just incredible at, at disappearing in the forest, and their their senses are absolutely phenomenal. Like they're they're they're, they're well above in terms of difficulty. Um, in terms of the difficulty due to the animal's natural senses. Um, I would put them at the same level as axis deer and definitely, definitely ahead of, definitely ahead of, uh, fallow deer and, and red deer. Um, yeah, they're really, really, really tricky to hunt. Um, and which is why people use guys, dogs. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So that's why that culture would have formed was because it was so in those days, it must've been so difficult to even get one shot at one deer with a rifle that they went. Bugger this! I'm going to st- I'm going to get some dogs, and that's how it's. That's exactly right. That's how it would have started. But um, there's plenty of guys in Victoria who are really successful bow hunters um, who have who have shot, who have hunted around Australia and around the world, who ha- still haven't shot one of these deer, and it's the, it's the deer of their home state. So that just brings it into perspective. Like they are, they're they're. they're they're mostly based in one particular state in Victoria, which is where the city of Melbourne is. Um, but there are plenty of very active bow hunters in Victoria who have never shot one of these things. They are. Have you ever shot, have you ever shot one? It's, I've shot one. Very interesting story. They live in Victoria. Um, that's that's their main range. Um, and like where they Sambadir come from, um, India. Um, generally that, that sort of region, the subcontinent, India, Sri Lanka, and further to the east, sort of towards Myanmar and Thailand. And, and they live across a fairly broad, like they, their, their, their original habitat is quite um, a, a wide sort of broad range. There was one particular tiny population that still exists up in the Northern Territory, which is where we hunt buffalo and bantang. Um, they were released in the mid 1800s um, when there was a failed settlement up there, um, which was supposed to be Darwin. So there was a remote remote settlement. They they persisted for about I think 20 years or 15 years, and um, eventually it failed. But they brought that's how Bantang got to Australia, and there's also a small population of Sambadia. Now those things are like ghosts up there. Like even to see one is is out of like. You could hunt there for weeks and weeks and weeks and not see one deer. They're just absolute ghosts. But 
on my first trip up there on the very first morning uh, while filming filming a hunt for a, for a short film and a, and a DVD we, we made, um, I shot one on the first morning. Yeah, it was really crazy. And we got it on film too. It was a spiker. So it wasn't like a mature stag or anything, but it was just, yeah, like any deer up there is, is I think three have ever been shot with a bow. So, um, well, it's actually four. So there's four that are, four that have ever been recorded that have been shot with a bow up there in history. So it's very, very rare. Yeah. Wow. So you are, you are part of the elite, like, and don't even try to say no, like, dude, you're one of the very few, man, like quite literally a handful of dudes have done it. And you're one of them. So, um, like, I just, man, that's crazy. And they look stinking cool. Like, guys, Google yeah, them because they look awesome. It's like a small elk. They're, they're really cool looking. And, yeah, like, they're, they're, they're very similar to a rooster deer. So, that, so genetically, their closest, um, closest relative is the rooster. Um, they also have three generally three points on each handler. So there are three by three. Um, Rusa look fairly similar, like in terms of their color and their antler, antler uh, formation is reasonably similar. There's a few differences, but, um, and they, I guess, border each other in their, in their natural habitat in Asia. So they're, um, I don't think, I'm not sure if they actually totally overlap. I don't think they do overlap um, in Asia, but, they're obviously yeah neighbors and genetically very close and we have rooster in australia as well so we we um yeah rooster are one of our favorite um and most actively hunted i guess deer species in australia so it's interesting in australia there's there's six we have six um six species of deer and they're all very different from each other um and they all live in completely different places um, occasionally there's overlap where, where two species of deer live in the same place, which is awesome when you can, when you can get it. Um, and all of these deer seem to just fit into their habitat so ridiculously well that you would swear they are native, you know, like none of these animals are native that we hunt here. They're all introduced. So we can't hunt. There's no native animals that we can hunt like you guys. But when you go and hunt these species where they have, where they've ended up, like where they actually exist now, you would swear they belong there. And that goes for the Samba deer in the forests of Victoria. It goes for uh, the Axis deer, which we we call them chittle deer in Australia. We don't really use the word Axis. We call them chittle, which is the in- original Indian word. Like where they live, you would just swear that they've always been there because they just seem to match that habitat so well. Um, and it's the same for the other four as well. They all seem to really fit into that environment where they've where they've been sort of released and where they've where they've um where they've ended up and we even though deer are introduced species in australia and i guess the government um generally um in most cases sees them as a pest they're not they're not well regarded as a as a as a game resource yet by most government departments uh, we absolutely treasure them. Like the hunting community just absolutely treasures our, our deer species. And we feel so privileged and lucky that, um, hope that, that over the course of history, these deer ended up in our country and that we do have these populations that we can hunt. And there's six, there's six very special species and we love them to death. Just like you, just like you have a relationship with whitetails and you probably do with muleys and you, you probably, it's not the same, you know, how you feel about hunting mule deer is probably not the same about as 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 the emotions that come with hunting whitetail 
And it's the same for us. Like we have this, it's interesting how we have this different kind of unique relationship with each of these species. And um, yeah, we love our deer, man. Like our, our six deer, we, we absolutely adore them and love them. And um, it's quite a challenge to like not many, not that many bow hunters have taken all six deer, put it that way. Like it's, it's only still a fairly limited list of, um, of Aussie bow hunters who have, who have managed to take all six species. That's a, that's a really hard undertaking to get all six of them. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. So, um, so do you guys have, is, yeah. is there one deer that is predominantly more hunted? I mean, if you look at license sales across the United States, whitetail is, is astronomically higher in, in tag sales. Um, is there, is there one deer that is way more hunted than all the other species? Yeah, I would say these days that it's the fallow deer. Um, they're probably yeah. the most widespread in Australia. Um, they live in multiple states. Um, they've just, be- I guess, th- I guess they're 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 available and accessible, and they've become very popular. Um, the latest craze in Australia is everyone has to go out and shoot a velvet buck before they, um, yeah, before they actually actually strip their velvet. So right now that's happening. You're seeing. You're seeing guys out there hunting them right now pre-rut. The rut hasn't kicked in yet. It's it's early April. Um, but, yeah, shooting velvet bucks has become a, a, a massive craze lately. I'm not – it doesn't really interest me. I'd rather hunt them during the rut. But, um, yeah, I'd say fallow would be number one. Um, and and they are an exciting deer, you know. Like during the rut, they're, it's, they're, they're quite they're, – they're very aggressive. They're very vocal. There's a lot of action. And you can call them so you can – you can rattle and call them similar to a similar to a whitetail, I guess, and and they are technically the only um, deer species that we that that technically are termed a buck and a doe. So that's the that's the correct terms. All the other the other five species, they're a stag and a hind. Um, that's the correct terminology. So yeah, fallow, they're they're they're, they're the true buck of Australia, and um, that'd be number one. I think number two would probably be red deer. Um, red stags are fairly widespread again. Again, they're very exciting to hunt. They're vocal. You can call them in. Um, it's very interactive. Um, and then I think after that, it would probably be a toss up between rooster and, and chittle. And I would say samba and hog deer would be at the bottom. Hog deer are a very small mini deer that's, um, the, the access to them is very limited. So there's only a very, um, it's a very limited range in terms of the, the habitat that they live in. It's very difficult to get access to private property to hunt them. And there are a couple of opportunities to go into a ballot um, and and have your name drawn, uh, basically essentially to, to draw a tag. Um, but the chances are extremely low. So, the, so hog deer hunting is very, very, very limited in, in Australia. The opportunities are very limited. So that's a really tough one to to tick off the list unless you're really, really lucky. Um, so yeah, that's, that's probably a good summary of, or a brief summary of, of the, of the 60 year. Yeah. Guys, I don't need to tell you about the blazer vein. You're probably familiar with the blazer vein and you're probably familiar with boning. Boning has been around forever. It's a name you can trust. They sell products you can trust. They have everything that you need to build your own arrows, all of the jigs to, to fletch your own arrows, all of the veins, all of the wraps, the countless numerous types of veins and wraps 
to build any kind of configuration you want. They also have some really cool Fredbear branded products with their Fredbear camo wraps and their Fredbear flannel wraps. Something that's really cool about that Fredbear flannel, that's actually a photo that was taken of one of Fredbear's flannel uh, famous shirts, you know, the red and gray and black that he always wore. That's actually a photo taken of his personal shirt and put on a wrap. It looks really cool, especially on some traditional arrows. But my very favorite configuration, and this is coming from an arrow junkie that's tried out all different kind of veins and all different kind of configurations. I have found that this configuration stabilizes pretty much every arrow. It's whisper quiet. They fly fantastic. The three-inch Bronco vein in a four-fletch absolutely flies like a dart, whether you're shooting mechanicals or big fixed this is going to be a fletching configuration that will work again whisper quiet long range accuracy i love this configuration this is on every single one of my compound arrows they just work guys i would highly encourage you to check out boning not just for the blazer vein but for the heat vein for the broncos for the x veins everything um that you need to build your own arrows is right there on boning's website they've been around for ages and i promise you if you order from them you're going to get products that you can trust. Now, do a lot of people come? I mean, is is Australia a destination place to come hunting? Do a lot of people from the States come to hunt Australia or no? I think it would be one of the least popular hunting destinations out of all of the countries that offer any type of hunting tourism in the world. Why is that? Um so I've, I've, I've heard many times, particularly European hunters, um, basically call our animals farm animals. You know, like they see pictures of buffalo and, um, and pigs and goats and, and all the typical species we hunt, and they kind of just think we're hunting um, semi-domestic animals. You know, they, they don't really respect them as a wild animal. We, we obviously do. We know they're wild and we know exactly what how wild they are. Um, but I think there's this perception in some parts of the world that yeah that we're not really hunting um that that, that, that yeah that they're not like then they're, they're not the same as a true native wild animal like you'd see in europe or north america for example the main attractant i think for international hunters still t- is is the buffalo that's probably the that probably brings the most um international hunters per year and the bantang would probably be second and often they're tied into the to, into a, a combo hunt um, I would say New Zealand, which is so close. New Zealand is such a short distance from Australia. I would, I would estimate that there would be 10 times, and I don't, this, I'm just making up numbers here, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just having a guess. I would estimate there'd be 10 times the number of international hunters that go to New Zealand per year compared to oh, Australia yeah. per year. Yeah. Now the I would say it's probably New close. Zealand is, yeah. And, like obviously the obviously the red stag has become a complete industry on its own in New Zealand. Um, it's just it's become a a huge industry, um, particularly the estate hunting of of, of um, those huge pumped up uh, red stags that are yeah obviously not wild animals. They're they're panned animals in in most cases. And I guess New Zealand has some mountain species in in the tar and the chamois. So to to have those two capra species that are um, fairly accessible and um, fairly affordable. They're both very affordable hunts when you look at mountain game around the world. Um, I guess there's a bit more attracting people to New Zealand, and, and it's um, it's it, the industry there is is certainly geared up to um, accepting a lot more international hunters per year. So I see Australia as one of the lowest 
on, like when you look at international, and I've met many, I've got many friends who have hunted the world and whatever, and Australia is just not very high on the priority list for, for the average American hunter or European hunter. It's, it's generally not going to be that high on the priority list. Um, you've probably, you've probably been to a lot of places and hunted a lot of different animals before you go, oh, you know what? I'm going to go to Australia and hunt a water buffalo. Um, and the adventure here is like the, 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 the quality of the hunts that are on offer and the quality of the outfitters and the, the, the experiences are absolutely phenomenal. Like, um, to go on a, if you went on a buffalo hunt, for example, which I've, which you definitely should, um, the experience of that would just be absolutely mind blowing for you. You would just be like, you would, it would totally blow your mind to go on a buffalo hunt in Australia. Um, and yeah, like it's, it's the, the, the experiences that are, on, that are on offer are equal to, if not, um, more amazing than what you'll see in lots of other parts of the world. Um, so yeah, there is the opportunities there, but there's just not, there's not a lot happening. There's, there's, there's not a, there's not a huge number of international hunters per year. It's, it's still fairly minimal compared to somewhere like, yeah, New Zealand or Argentina or just comparing to other countries where you're mostly hunting introduced animals rather than the native animals. Yeah. Nothing like, now, nothing like the numbers that Argentina and New Zealand. You say it's not up on people's priority list. Ever since our first conversation, I have wanted to hunt Australia. And and kudos to you, man. You do a good job. You, you're passionate about where you live. You're passionate about the hunting. And that goes back to if you want to learn how to how to have conversations about hunting, be passionate about it. Like if you want to learn how to communicate why we hunt, where we hunt, when we hunt, the reasons behind it, our cultural heritage, um, you got to be passionate about it. Like you can't be willy nilly about it. And, and since our first conversation, dude, I've wanted to hunt Australia. So is it super expensive to hunt Australia? I mean, can I come and hunt Australia for, uh, you know, how does that look price comparatively to if I want to go and kill a red stag in New Zealand or, you know, an axis buck or whatever? Um, what, how does that, how's the price breakdown to hunt in Australia? It's, it's pretty affordable really compared to, um, yeah, com comparative to virtually any other place in the world. It is, it is very affordable. The most expensive, um, hunts, uh, are the remote, um, wilderness hunts for, for Buffalo and Bantang up in the Northern Territory. Um, at the moment, like as a, like you can, you can score a, if you, if you got lucky, you could score a, score a Buffalo hunt for a little less than 10,000 US. Um, most of them are going to be around that 10,000 US and some outfitters charge significantly more. Um, but if you had a budget of around 10,000 US, um, for a Buffalo hunt, you could, you could make that happen. The Bantang, are, the Bantang are considerably more expensive. So they sort of started around 15,000 and go up from there. They're, they're much more, um, sort of the opportunities are much less on Bantang and they're, they're, they're much more prized and there's, there's, I guess there's less opportunities and less of them. So it's sort of a, it's more of a specialist kind of, kind of hunt and they are a really amazing species, um, on their own, but look, there's, they're, they're there's really lots good of opportunities too, too. Um, the young ones are okay, but the, the, the big balls are not, not good at all. Yeah. The, like the, the big mature balls are just really virtually inedible. Oh, okay. Um, See, I've, meats, I've, yeah, I, thought, I thought I remembered here and they were like delicious, like phenomenal eating. 
they look tasty. Like the, when I see one walking around, I, it looks tasty to me. But when you try and eat one, though, it's it's not. Um, it's just uh, very, very, very tough meat. Yeah, especially like an old bull is very, very hard. Like you could you could um, put it through a grinder or a mincer, and you could you could. There's ways that you could manage it, but um, no, they're generally the young ones are okay. And buffalo, buffalo meats. I, I really love buffalo meat, but again, like it's it's about the right cut and the right animal. Like a, if you just take the wrong cut of a big old bull, it's, it's not going to be a good, it's not going to be a good meal. Um, what is, what is so your that, best like, tasting? Guess, what's your best, what's your best eaten wild game in Australia, in your opinion? I think, I think the axis deer is probably still the number one uh, out of all bingo. of our species. Yeah. Yeah, and, for sure. And rooster would be number two for me. Um, that, that all of those six deer species are, are quite different um, in their taste, and as you as you see with anywhere in the world, like if you compare all the antelopes in 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 southern Africa, or if you compare the deer of North America, there's going to be those those distinct differences. But Axis, I would rate number one, and Rooster number two, um, and the others would sit somewhere under there. But yeah, Axis deer is pretty hard to beat. Like it's 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 pretty yeah. amazing, um, pretty amazing venison, but. But in terms of other opportunities, yeah, like for, for say say if you wanted to book a guided deer hunt, you would do that for a lot less. Like you could you could you could come in here and book a you could book a really awesome bow hunt for say a red deer or a fallow deer or or, or a rooster or samba or or axis hog deer is a little bit more difficult. But the other five. Um, you could you could you could book a hunt for sort of yeah four or five or six thousand US um, depending on the location and, and other factors. Um, and the other thing is, there is a there's a there's a if you're willing to make if you're willing to sort of um, connect with people and sort of make the right contacts, there is the the potential to organise a swap, which I think works really well. I've done that a few times recently with um, with mates around the world, but. A lot of our hunting is on private land, so the, va- the, the the vast majority is on private land. So what that comes down to is 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 being lucky to have access to a particular ranch or a particular property. So if you happen to know someone who has great access for for a particular species, um, you could go and hunt with them for free. Like you you don't even have to buy a license. You could you could come here, you could fly over here tomorrow, and you and I could go hunting deer. We could go hunting access deer three hours from here, and you wouldn't even need a hunting license or anything. You wouldn't have to pay a cent. I'm on so my there way. is that kind of opportunity as well. I'll see you tomorrow. I will. Uh, I'll make plans. I will bite the bullet, and I'll be there tomorrow, dude. We'll be hunting deer. That's that's how it can work. So um, if you hook up with the right people, um, and you. Yeah, you um, create these opportunities. That, that I think there's a lot to be said for that, rather than just going straight to an outfitter and paying paying the full retail price for a hunt. Um, I've done that recently with a good friend of mine in France, Errol Errol Benstead, who's the editor of the of the French Bionic magazine. He he's just hosted me in France recently, and we went hunting two species of chamois. And he came over here hunting buffalo with me last year. He shot a huge, huge mature amazing buffalo bull on the first morning of the hunt with his with his longbow at about 10 yards so like that was just crazy that whole like that swap that we did like that that um for him to come to australia and just experience buffalo hunting in australia particularly with a longbow that's that's pretty ballsy um 
And then for me to go over to France and hunt with him was just like, it's just such a cool way of um, creating opportunities and having those experiences. And you're not, when you're with an outfitter and you're paying money, you've got all these expectations and this is how you want things to be. And um, you sort of go with the flow and whatever, but it's still a financial transaction. Whereas when you do a swap, you're sort of hunting with a mate, you know, you're hunting with a friend. You're not, you're not just, you're not just purely being guided. It's, it's much, it's a different experience when you're hunting with someone who you've connected with as a friend rather than a, a truly sort of financial um, exchange. So, so how I think many there's a country... lot to be said for that. And I think. No, go ahead. Sorry, mate. Oh, I was just going to say, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And, and I think, I think that that potential for particularly Americans with the opportunities uh, that you guys have in, in, like there seems to be such a broad range of opportunities and um, Australian hunters are really interested in American hunting, you know, like, like, like so much of the media, so much of all of our equipment comes from the States. We're very, we're very aware of what's going on in the hunting world in the States. You're probably not very aware of what's going on here, but we are very aware of what's going on in, in your country and, and within your hunting culture. So I think for, like the average American guy that wanted to come and experience a hunt in Australia, it wouldn't be that hard to to um, make the right contact to do something like that to to do a swap because to me that's a that's a great way of doing it. Um, and some people won't want to do that. Some people would just rather book a hunt, and and that's fine. And I I, I organise hunts like I, I have a booking agency, so I I um I'm up for that anytime if anyone wants to book a buffalo hunt or book any kind of hunt in Australia or or any part of the world. Yeah, like that's um yeah I'm I do that every day so um yeah there's there's different ways to approach it there are different opportunities and um there's there's something for everyone i think yeah so how many countries have you hunted in um it's 16 now i think um wow it's either 16 or 17 yeah i can't I thought I had it right a few weeks. I, I counted it up a few weeks ago and I thought I had it right and then I realized I had it wrong. But, I, yeah, it's either 16 or 17, yeah. I hunted in Mexico last year, uh, late last year, and that was either number 16 or 17, yeah. Wow. Yep. Um, so where all have you hunted in the States? It's pretty crazy. Um, I've only hunted – this is this will make you laugh. I've only hunted in Texas um, in the States. I've hunted in Canada – um, I've hunted in a few different parts of Canada, but in the States, I've only hunted in Texas. In, um, I've, I did a whitetail hunt um, sort of uh, a fair way out from San Antonio. And I also hunted blackbuck in a couple of spots in the Texas Hill Country, free range, but didn't have any success. And then I ended up um, getting an opportunity to hunt one with some random guys that um, that one of my one of my mates from Texas, who I met on a hunt in Canada many years ago, um, one of his friends had a ranch with with free range blackbuck. We managed to organise it, and yeah, I managed to get a hunt in, and I got one. And I was really, really obsessed with blackbuck at that time, so it was a big deal for me to to get an opportunity. But it's all been in Texas, and I love Texas. Like it's just. I just find it so fascinating. Virtually everything in Texas I find fascinating. Like I just, um, it's a real, uh, it's a real experience. I, I, I just, I just feel so welcome there and the people are just, uh, yeah, the people are always so cool. And I, I, I really, um, I really love everything about Texas, but that's all I've seen. I haven't, 
apart from flying through airports, I haven't hunted anywhere else. So I need to change that. I haven't been to Alaska either. I haven't haven't been to Alaska yet. So that is on the cards for the near future. But um, yeah, that's kind of it. Now, Texas is so cool because, and again, I, I want to hunt Australia. I'm not taking anything away from that. But um, Texas is so cool because if you want to hunt those exotics, it gives you the opportunity to hunt those exotics. Now, because I see no difference in because like it's exactly like you just said those red stag that everybody wants to go and kill in New Zealand they're all pin raised animals just like the ones in Texas yeah so there's no difference in in saving yourself four thousand dollars and going to Texas to kill one as opposed as opposed to flying to New Zealand now I want to kill yeah. an axis deer so bad like I, I would love to kill an axis deer um, and it's been on the top of my list so has black buck. It's been on top of my list for a long time. Would I love to do those free range, you know, in Australia? Yes. But I can also do those free range for a whole lot cheaper in Texas. So don't yeah. just write off Texas. Like, don't just say, well, I want to go and hunt these animals in New Zealand or these animals in, in Australia and, and wherever else and Asia. I get why you want to do that. But you can also save yourself yeah. a whole lot of time and money doing it in texas and and virtually it's the same thing it's a trophy on the wall you know what i mean yeah and like there's lots of i'm not i'm not into closed range hunting like i'm not into i'm not into hunting stuff behind wire it just doesn't interest me um but, but it has its place and um yeah like for me in with those kinds of species it, it has to be free range or nothing so like there has like I, I managed to i shot a nice uh whitetail buck um, in Texas, I've shot a couple of Ordads, Barbary sheep, um, at my mate's ranch. So that was the mate that I met in Canada. Um, he, when we were in, when we were in Canada hunting elk and moose, he's, him and his father were doing a father and son trip and they said, Oh yeah, we live in, we live in the Texas hill country and we have Ordads on our ranch. You can come and hunt them anytime. And I was like, are you serious? You're inviting me to come and hunt Ordads at your ranch in Texas. And they were like, yeah, of course. So what did I do? I, did, I went and that was just amazing. Like, and they're, they're just such beautiful people and um, we're so welcome. And those are as free, one day th and, those are as free as free range gets. Like yeah, people, people override, yeah, people over uh, like just, you know, overlook all dad in Texas because they immediately think high fence, you know, you walk out and shoot one. Dude, I have talked to people who have hunted stone sheep and doll sheep and all that, and they're like, I'll tell you what, dude, you go to Texas in the hill country and you will get your tail kicked chasing all that. They're switched on, yeah. They're switched on, um, just like all of their relatives that are, that are in that similar sort of similar sort of genus. Yeah, they're, they're very, very switched on. But um, no, I really need to start expanding my horizons a bit. I... I um, I'm actually coming over this year, um, and the guy I'm going with just—it's so strange. He just tried to call me just then. My phone just lit up. Um, there's a there's an old guy in Australia. Well, I shouldn't say old. He's eighty. Ian's eighty three, I think, this year. Um, so he's not that old. But this guy is like the absolute like the the he's like the Fred Bear of Australian bow hunting, but he's still alive. Um, he's had a, he's had such a active involvement in bow hunting since, since the very beginning, um, in Australia has held all kinds of positions in different organizations. And he's probably single-handedly been the one who's done a, done a fantastic job of capturing our history and really celebrating our history. 
he had a museum, a, a, an archery and bow hunting museum for several years that um, it didn't actually continue. It was a little bit hard to, to continue to manage, but Ian um, always had a, a, a great connection with the um, the Archery Hall of Fame in the States. So he's been over to the to the um, the, the American Archery Hall of Fame um, event several times previously, and he asked me this year if I would go with him because he's not he won't this will be his last trip. He won't he's he's getting sort of to that age where he won't be able to fly internationally. So yeah, so I'm coming over in May for that. So that'll be really interesting. Um, but there won't be any hunting happening. It'll just be um, it'll just be socialising. Um, it's a shame there's not really anything to hunt at that time of the year. There's really not much going on in May, is there? Um, for you guys, it's not really too much Spring to get bear. excited about. Um, spring bear hunting. Yeah, okay. Uh, there's very few states that offer spring bear. Um, Montana, I'll be hunting spring bear in Montana this year. Uh, Idaho offers spring bear. Um, so you can you can hunt a few things. Um, hogs turkeys um so yeah i mean there's a couple options but spring bear is definitely what i uh what i get excited about i could care less about turkeys it's a bird um you know some people some people just freak out over turkeys and i'm like but it's still just a bird like no matter what it's a bird so uh i get fired up about spring bear um but yeah man i uh i I gotta make it over to australia so you you come here and and we'll hunt some whitetails or whatever you want to hunt. And then, uh, I want to come kill an axis, an axis buck in a, in, in Australia. So. Yeah, well, that's, um, that's easy to organize. Yeah. Um, that's, that's super easy. Um, it's not an easy hunt. It's an incredibly tough hunt. Um, especially spot and stalk. Um, it's, 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 yeah, they're, they're incredibly difficult to, to get near. Um, um, yeah, there's, there's, there is potential to use tree stands in that area, and we have, um, with varying degrees of success in the past, it is it is possible to use a tree stand. Um, but yeah, man, like, I would love to one day, um, like I'd love to just do a really typical uh, Midwest kind of whitetail hunt at some point in my life, like just just proper. You, like the really, really, really typical kind of whitetail hunt. In Texas, it's kind of a bit different. You're hunting out of blinds yeah. and they're using corn and stuff like that. So it's sort of – it was interesting, but I really would like to do a, a really traditional, classical um, whitetail hunt one day. Yeah, that really interests me. Um, so, we'll yeah, have to make it, happen, make it happen, man, for sure. Easy. Well, guys, Easy thank done. you so much for listening. Ben, where can they find you at, man? Because if you don't follow Ben Solaris – you are doing yourself a disjustice because the dude's hunted in 16 countries, uh, receiving awards for the biggest sheep killed. I mean, just he's he's an incredible hunter. You need to be following him. Where can they find you at, Ben? Um, yeah, I, I'm not terribly active on social media, but I still keep I still updated and and um yeah, there's fairly regular stuff happening. Like I've, I've got a fairly busy schedule each year. There's always there's always hunts. Um, happening and um yeah I, my instagram handle is just um at ben solaris and that's uh b-e-n-s-a-l-l-e-r-a-s um and my business page is silent pursuits at silent pursuits so that's my own um, booking agency so yeah if anyone's interested in um in in coming to australia if you if you need it if even if someone just wanted some info about um the options that are here um please hit me up um, the website silentpursuits.com. Um, you can you can uh, contact us through there or, or through social media. But yeah, even if you just want a bit of info about what what options are available over here, I'd be more than happy to help. 
Um, but yeah, mate, it's been great to catch up, and um, yeah, it sounds like the seed's been planted for a, for maybe a um, yeah another exchange hunt here, a whitetail, um, there you a whitetail go. hunt in the states, and then yeah, an axis an axis hunt over here. There's a lot of pigs in that area too. So when you when we're hunting axis, there's always pigs. There's there's a pig around every corner. So it's kind of a and I like and killing pigs and stuff like that. Yeah, well, it's a it's it's cool. It's a really interesting place, and um, yeah, it's 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 re- it's very very Australian. There's thousands of kangaroos everywhere, and wallabies, and snakes, and goannas, and it's very uh, it's an authentic Australian experience hunting in that area. So you'd have a you'd have a ball. And you're not far from the Great Barrier Reef, so we'll be able to go to the Great Barrier Reef and do the fishing and diving and stuff as well. Nice. I'm in. Count me in. I'm on my way there. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Let's make it happen, mate. Let's make it happen. Guys, there's not many things that I'm going to tell you to stop and do right now. One of those things is to stop and go join Pope and Young right now. It's 45 bucks for the entire year to be a member of Pope and Young. And what that does for you is that helps to ensure your rights as a bow hunter. Pope and Young is constantly fighting for your rights as a bow hunter. They are the national bow hunting organization in North America. They exist to protect your rights as a bow hunter. They are all the time going before state legislators uh, to fight for your rights and to continue protecting your rights as a bow hunter. The record book exists in the first place because somewhere between us and the Indians, people had lost sight that bow hunting was a lethal way of harvesting big game and so glenn st charles and his group of cohorts they started the record book so they could take it to different states and show that bow hunting is in fact a a ethical way of harvesting big game so guys don't get caught in and and pope and young only being a record book they are your voice for bow hunters and there's power in numbers so i would highly encourage you to join today because we need to stand together to protect our rights also what you might not know is if you've bought a bare bow, you can go and register that bow and you're actually going to get a free Pope and Young membership. Bear Archery is such a believer in the mission of Pope and Young and what they stand for and what they do to protect our rights that they are going to buy your first year's membership. So if you've bought a bow, go online and register that bow and you're going to get a free year's membership to Pope and Young. But guys, I would encourage you, stop right here right now and go join Pope and Young because we have to protect our rights as bow hunters. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I uh, I, I appreciate it. Stay tuned uh, to see me hunting down under. 